Welcome to the British Food History Podcast. I'm Dr. Neil Buttery. Today, we're turning the tables. And I am the guest being interviewed about my new book, Before Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth Ruffled, England's Most Influential Housekeeper, published 28th of February, by Pen and Sword History, and it's about the 18th century. And it's about the 18th century cook, cookery writer, and Manchester legend, Elizabeth Ruffold. In the interviewer's chair is previous guest and friend of the show, Alessandra Pino. I'll tell you more after this most brief of brief messages. Hello, this is Tom Dinas, the host of the Delicious Legacy podcast, a podcast all about food and history. As fans of the British food history, I know you have a bottomless appetite for all dusty recipes, unknown herbs, mysterious spices, and long-lost ingredients. So, why don't you join me? You can find the Delicious Legacy podcast wherever you listen to quality podcasts, such as the British food history and also on Twitter and Instagram. And now back to your regular program. So yes, Alessandra Pino is in charge today, not me. If you don't know, Alessandra is co-author of A Gothic Cookbook, which is an illustrated cookbook inspired by classic and contemporary Gothic texts. She's also the co-host of Fear Feasts, a podcast about food and horror in books, and the films based on those books. And, like me, she's interested in the history of sugar, as a chapter coming out soon in the Pelgrave Companion to Memory and Literature about memory, sugar and Cuba. Links to all of those things, as well as her previous appearance on the podcast, are in the show notes, along with many of the things discussed in this episode including where you can get an early bird discount of 25% for my new book from publisher Pen and Sword History. I'm not going to say much more, really, except to say that the next episode will be a postbag episode. So does anything crop up today that you'd like to ask me about? Does it set off any memories? Do you live in Manchester when Market Place and the Shambles, where Elizabeth had her shops, still existed? I would really love to know but really, any queries or questions, etc., about any of the episodes in this season or any season so far will be greatly received. Email me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com or send me a DM on Twitter, at neilbuttery or on Instagram, doctor, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. Of course, I'll be in social media telling you about this episode, so pop a little message in the comments. I'll post on the new British Food of History Facebook discussion page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. And I say this pretty much every episode, and thank goodness I do, because thanks again to everyone who's followed, downloaded, listened and spread the word to help the podcast keep on growing and growing. Thanks too to everyone who started a £3 subscription or treated me to a virtual coffee or pint. If you fancy doing that, there's info about that in the end or in the show notes. Right, it's time to hand over. In our conversation, Alessandra and I talked about how I discovered Elizabeth in the first place, Elizabeth's great achievements, the problem of Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth's fantastic recipes, as well as the recipe section in my book of updated raffled recipes, We also talk about rabbits surprised, comparisons with modern chefs like Heston Blumenthal, why there is no statue of her in Manchester, and the time she exercised a house from an evil spirit, and much, much more. 
I'll be back at the end with more news, etc. But here we go with Elizabeth Raffold, with Alessandra Pino, and Neil Buttery. I'm here with Dr. Neil Buttery, host of the British Food History Podcast and author of A Dark History of Sugar, out last year, and now author of Before Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth Raffold, England's most influential housekeeper, and that's out this month. Now, Elizabeth was a bit of an enigma, and there isn't much out there about her and all the things that she did, but luckily we have Neil here to tell us a bit more about her and his book. Hi, Neil. Hello. Thanks for asking me on. (laughs) I can't wait to hear more about this food writer, cook. I mean, she was so many things, but on the map of food writers like Mrs. Beaton, Eliza Smith, (laughs) Hannah Glass and others, where do we position Elizabeth and how is she different? Can you tell us a bit about who she was and what her achievements were? Well, we should be positioned very high. You know, I I argue highest, although all those other names you've just listed have all made great contributions to British cuisine at the time and continue to do so. So I'm not having a go at everyone. There's so many achievements to her name. It's hard actually for me to remember them all. <laughs> I have to have them written down so I don't miss any out. I, I first found out about her when I started my blog, the Neil Cook's Grigson blog, 15 years ago or whenever it was. Uh, I didn't know anything about British food, certainly about the history anyway. And apart from roast dinners and a shepherd's pie, that was my repertoire. I was much more interested in Italian food and Asian food. And I decided to do it because I didn't know about British food. And here we are 15 years later. (laughs) There was no grand plan, but I'm very happy where it's ended up. But Elizabeth Raffold is used a lot in Jane Grigson's books. She obviously really appreciated her. The first recipe that I cooked is Elizabeth Raffles Orange Custards, English food, mm. Penguin paperback, third edition. Yeah, I've got the same one. And she gives a little potted biography of her. She was amazing. So she was a housekeeper at Arley Hall in Cheshire at, at the age of 25, which is pretty good. for. It was a big hall. It still is a big hall. You know, she had a lot of people under her. And, you know, being a housekeeper required a certain amount of gravity and maturity, you know, to be able to carry it off well. And 25 is fairly young, but she didn't just carry it off well. She did it excellently. She was, uh, I guess, what would people say, a game changer now. I hate that phrase, but Mm. she was a game changer. But after she left Arley Hall, she went to Manchester. She was born in Yorkshire and I live in, I'm from Yorkshire. I live in Manchester. So I feel that, you know, there's some parallels there. She was an overachiever. That's where the parallel doesn't necessarily exist. Well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but anyway, what she says is uh, she spent 18 years in Manchester. During those years, she uh, had a cooked food shop selling pies, brawns, pickles, etc. I didn't think, I don't think I knew what, what brawn was at the time. You know, this is very hmm. early on in my career, if you want to call it that. She yeah. had an enlarged cooked food shop with confectionery department. The f- she started the first domestic servants employment agency which is nuts. That's amazing. She ran two important Manchester inns. She drew up the first street and trade directory of Manchester at a time where there was 20,000 inhabitants. She did three editions of that, it would turn out, as I was researching the book. She saved a couple of newspapers from going bust and funded them. (laughs) She had an unreliable husband. I mean, that is an understatement. We'll talk about that in a bit, maybe. And her cookery book which I guess is the important thing, or at least is at first, you know, this is the first thing people know about her. It's called The Experienced English Housekeeper, published in 1769. And it was a groundbreaking book. 
And I just thought, well, that is quite a CV. And I cooked the other recipes in English food by Jane Grigson uh, that I buy Elizabeth Raffle. They all worked. And the first sort of historical cookbook I bought is the 1992 edition by Southover Press, a reissue of the experienced English housekeeper. So um, Jane and Elizabeth have been with me for the whole, my whole oh. journey through um, food history and and you know, becoming a chef and becoming a writer. You know, they're the two food writers that I, I guess, hold most dear to me because they've, they've both been really influential. Yeah. And they're looking over you, aren't they, Neil? And uh, your book is called Before Mrs. Beaton. Mm. Now, Mrs. Beaton mm. is very well known. She seems mm. to provoke some strong reactions. And I can tell from you as well a little bit. Can you tell us a bit why? Yes, Mrs. Beaton does generate quite large and often negative reactions it's a funny one so mrs beaton well she's in the book there because i think people who even if they're not particularly interested in food history have probably at least heard of mrs beaton heard the name even even if they don't know who she is and i guess she's kind of held up as this fantastic woman who wrote this huge book you know she died young and it's this amazing snapshot of food in britain in the mid or the second half of of the 19th century and it is a fantastic book i'm not knocking it from that point of view but there's a lot of stuff going on before her by other women and elizabeth raffold being in my opinion being the major player in that really what was happening with mrs beaton's book of household management was she in inverted commas i mean how much she was actually writing is well i guess it's up for argument but she didn't actually write very much of it But uh, she collected, let's say, lots of recipes from other female writers. She had an army of other people researching too. But really, she really was just editing. She wasn't wasn't writing any of it. And the idea behind the book really was her husband's. And I think he did the bulk of the work. Yeah, they collected all these recipes together, plagiarized other recipes, essentially, sometimes word for word. And every aspect of household management was in there too. So all the self-help books that might have specialised, I don't know, in being a housekeeper or dealing with legal matters. I mean, everything is in that book. You didn't have to buy a second book if you bought Mrs. Beaton's book of household management. Everything was there. So not only um, does she take the work of other women in the preceding century or from the preceding century up until her present day, um, she also essentially puts them out of business because you don't have to buy more than one book anymore. So she's got a lot to answer for, as Mrs. Beaton. And in the in the book, I call her the Colonel Sanders of, yes. <laughs> of food writers, which is maybe a bit cruel. But um, my point is, is she's more, she's more of a brand name than she is an actual person. And that was very much um, intended right from the beginning, really. Okay. That she died so young, I don't mean to sound uh, insensitive, but <laughs> that she died young kind of lifts her even more, you know, on, on, a, on a pillar even more as this yeah. bastion of English food because there's a certain amount of that kind of Victorian romanticism, you know, she put all this work in, she died young and all that kind of stuff, which is sad and all. I mean, I'm sure the publishing house were rubbing their hands because there's nothing like a yeah. dead writer to boost sales. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and maybe I'm misremembering, but something else that Mrs. Beaton did, did she put the in- list of ingredients at the top of the recipe instead of it being incorporated within the method of the recipe itself? No, that uh, that is her. Yeah, yeah, it is her. And the recipes are good. You know, yeah. I'm not knocking the recipes. It's just how they were acquired. That yeah. I'm knocking. No, it so. just really interests me how 
you know, sometimes some some names become a lot more famous than others. And and so the great job that you're doing here is you're actually bringing to life this uh, author, Elizabeth Raffold, who isn't isn't that well known. But so, she was a household name she, you know, around the country yeah. uh, and in Northern America. Okay. You know, yeah. her book was published in North America. So she was... People, I, I get really annoyed when people say, oh, Manchester had its own Mrs. Beaton. No. <laughs> London had its own Elizabeth Raffold and she was called Mrs. Beaton. You're getting yes. it the wrong way around. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mrs. You know, I think uh, Elizabeth Raffold should be the the one who is, you know, on that plinth. Yeah. You know, elbowing Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Beaton out of the way. Anybody who reads about her, I think, or has read about her, would probably agree with me. And hopefully, as when people read the book, they'll end up agreeing with me. That's the aim. Yeah, and she was obviously very, very busy in her work life. She was busy in her personal life. She had a lot of children. She had a husband that was, I think, well, probably most of the time he was he was drunk, but it hadn't always been that way. No. Yeah, the question I wanted to ask you was, how does Elizabeth Raffles' life reflect the changes that were occurring in Britain at the time that she was alive and operating. And yeah, if you had hmm. any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I mean, she harnessed change. That's what she was good at and um, made it accessible. She probably didn't invent many things. What she hmm. did was she was able to locate a zeitgeist and, you know, make her package it up and make her her own. And it comes from every aspect, I suppose. So even from the point of view of um, early life or her early career, should I say, when she was in domestic service, she really jumped on the fact that all the domestic servants that would be in the countryside were all going down to London. Some to Bath, some to Bristol, some to York, but mainly just like this gravity of London was pulling all the staff, which meant two things. If you were in London and you just moved there and you were just newly middle class, you had none of the connections that people had had in the countryside, you know, for generations. So there were lots of dodgy domestic servants around who were ready to fleece you, maybe even steal from you, who were yeah. maybe at best just inept at their job. And then you had all these wealthy landowners in, in the countryside who suddenly had no staff and they had the same problem. And they were desperate for very different reasons because they had not enough staff. And again, people were ready there to, to swoop in because they knew they were desperate. So yeah. what Elizabeth did was, and it's brilliant she just used good old-fashioned hard work and trustworthiness but she was not your average person she was Mm. extremely intelligent she must have been very charismatic you know i mean her career when she moved later to manchester is built on her connections to people so she just went in there did a fantastic job and could be completely trusted and then when Mm. she's in alley hall as, as a housekeeper at 25 she then harnesses the new technologies in um, ceramics, tableware, and has these. Well, I was talking to Ivan Day about this a few episodes ago, <laughs> and he showed me all the amazing um, jelly molds and flummery molds, which were very thin and you know difficult to produce. She really worked together with people on the cutting edge. <laughs> we yeah. don't really know who they are, but Staffordshire pottery factories were, were working with her to produce these amazing things. So she transformed how food was. And she was using, of course, the ingredients of, of empire as well, which yes. were being, being brought in, mm-hmm. as well as the um, all the things that had come to pass from the agricultural revolution. You know, we were growing fruit and veg all year round, these amazing yeah. hot walls and um, melon houses and hot houses for growing pineapples all year round, you know, all that crazy stuff. 
as well as animals being available all year round for slaughter. It used to be just a wintertime thing, you know, very seasonal. You're getting them all year round. So she just leapt on all these different things and made them her own. And she had a great relationship with the people she worked with. She was obviously very good at networking and she had friendships and she knew that she needed to have a good relationship with people in order to get what, what she wanted and where she wanted. But I love, absolutely love that part in the book where there is this description of the transition from medieval times to then kind of um, agricultural revolution times mm. where people, the servants used to live in the same estate as the lords and they used to have daily contact with the people that they were working for and the animals and the cattle and the pigs were available and they were there on the same ground. So you had a very close connection between the people in charge, the people working for these people and then the animals and the, and the animals that were bred and then that were providing the food. And then suddenly that really starts to change. And mm. I just love how you describe that in the book and how she is living at that time where there is this big change and then you have to go to the butchers to get your meat. It's not available on the same grounds where you where you live and and um, and work. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the big change there is that um, people who are on your land, farmers on your land, instead of paying in kind, you know, in wheat or in meat or cheese or whatever it might be, it moved to cash. So suddenly people had to not make food for the Lord, but make food to sell and then pay rent. So yeah, it all completely, completely changed. But yeah, it's really interesting because I didn't know that much about domestic service in the 18th century. I think people think when you go and write a book, you already know everything. <laughs> like, no, you know the basic outline, but you don't know the, the absolute details. And the research takes you to these interesting places, doesn't it? Well, that's it. And you think of, oh, housekeepers and butlers and valets, and you think of upstairs downstairs or downton abbey where it's all very separate you know and there's butlers who are running around being all curt to the you know looking down the noses and be all yes or no sir to the to the lord but yeah it was completely different when she was there there was no servants quarters everyone was living together sometimes the housekeeper or the um ladies in waiting were living in the or sleeping in the same bedroom Yes. Or at least next door to you know to the lady of the house, for example. But yeah, that all suddenly suddenly changed. Yeah. I find that separation fascinating mm. on you know the interpersonal closeness and the production of food, and then how that closeness separates on all levels, and then you get kind of different dynamics. And mm. she's obviously in the middle of that um, of that change. Yeah, it just all becomes about money then, yes, rather yes. than about living together. You know, it's it's a it's a subtle but important change in yeah. our, you know in our history and our, and our attitude she was a businesswoman and talking of money she employed the subscription method for the experienced english housekeeper mm. can you tell us a bit more about the perils of piracy at this time she was so worried about piracy so worried about piracy and quite rightly this is pre-copyright law yeah, really so it was a real threat yeah. And she, um, to prove that her book, when it was when it would be printed eventually, she signed the first page of the recipes by hands that people would know that it's uh, an actual copy. Well, when I went again, when I went to see Ivan Day, he he's got a first edition, so it's got her signature in it. Okay. Wow. Made me um, shiver a little bit. In fact, it's just I've just shivered a little bit. Now talking about it, but this is exciting. Next week, so people listening. This is now your past, but it's our future. I'm going to look at 
potentially getting hold of a first edition. I'll probably have to remortgage. <laughs> How much do you think? Like, is it thousands and thousands? It's a bit. It's a bit tatty. So there's um, some of the important things in the book, which the go-to bits of the book are things like the um, directions of a grand table at the back with the big mm-hmm. fold-out plans. That's kind of missing. Okay. okay. But the signatures there, wow. and the recipes are there. But anyway, it's a bit dog-eared and a bit tatty, but it's a first edition and her signatures there. Well, and you know, it's a real connection then. I think. Yeah, and then if anyone deserves an opportunity to have a first edition, I think she would be very happy that it were you. I hope so. Mm. Now, the experienced English housekeeper contains modern recipes or ones that we would consider modern, such as omelettes and ice creams. But then there are others that are very much in the past, things Mm -hmm. like sparrow dumplings or the instructions on collaring a swine's face. (laughs) Get my head around that. What recipe of hers would you be happy to see reintroduced in today's world? There's lots of very sensible recipes. You know, there's very few really crazy ones. I mean, they're, they're certainly there and they're represented. Don't get me wrong. But there's lots of great puddings. I, I give a recipe for a pudding at the back of the book, a hunting pudding. I have a little recipe section at the back. I originally yes. was gonna I was originally gonna dot it, you know, maybe between the chapters or something, or even within chapters. But her life's got such a narrative to it. I, I felt it was all getting in the way. So I kind of shoved them all, I shoved them all to the back. <laughs> I absolutely love that section at the back. Cook like it's 1769. And I did a good plum cake. Oh. How did that turn out? I love it. Yeah, it was really, really good. And it's so tasty. I had it with a bit of cheese as well. Good. Fruitcake with cheese, it's the way forward. It's so, so good. I don't often cook at low temperatures. So it was interesting. It was like 150 degrees. So it was cooking for a longer time. And it's just absolutely delicious. Mm. And I love the indications that you give. You know, that's through your own experience and work where you have seen that, you know, what a pint corresponds to now is different from what it correspond, what, what it meant then. And yeah. so all the work that you've done in trying to develop these recipes, uh, yeah, it's really fascinating. And um, and I was mm. having a read at that back section and I really, really enjoyed that. I'm glad you put that in. Yeah, I mean, I think people get bog, bogged down in authenticity. Um, it's something I mention a lot. And I just think, well, you get so bogged down in that you never make anything. Yeah. So you got to at some point draw the line so for me at least at least talking to uh you know uh, readers who might want to try some recipes the first things that you should control authenticity wise are the things that are going to ruin it so pints were yeah pints were smaller so <laughs> for a long time i wondered why all my batters and things were too wet and runny it's because pints were smaller then yeah. eggs were smaller then yeah a teaspoon is not a teaspoon Mm-hmm. Not, it's not five mils. It's a great big spoon that you use in the caddy for spooning out your tea into pots. More like a, yeah. more like a tablespoon. So all these little things I was I was getting wrong. I was ending up with bad food. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to authenticity, I think you've just got to understand what she means, and you just can't you can't take anything as read. So when they say a teaspoon, you've got to check what a teaspoon actually is. So I've mm-hmm. hopefully anyway done done the hard work and done the mess ups. <laughs> and got things wrong so that people have the book and want to have a go, you know, so, so they don't have to. And then hopefully they can check out Elizabeth's book, which is, it's there for free on the web. And if those yeah. recipes don't appeal at the back of the book, well, hopefully I've armed them with enough knowledge <laughs> that I can go out and maybe adapt some of the other recipes. Because every recipe that I've done has worked. Yes. Once I've got the amounts right and all that kind of stuff. And talking of other recipes, so you mentioned 
that there are recipes that provide a spectacle. And um, I'm going to mention Rabbit Surprised. Yeah, we need to talk about Rabbit Surprised because Rabbit Surprised, I mean, that is the one that I suppose stands out. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, first of all, I remember reading it for the first time going, Rabbit Surprised? Shouldn't that be Rabbit Surprise? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, but it's it, like, oh, yeah. hang on, it's rabbits served in an exciting way or maybe it's disguised as something else. I don't know. But it's rabbit surprise. Recipes, you know, as a surprise, it's like something, yeah, like, oh, look, take this off and then you get something unexpected. Yeah, yeah exactly. But the rabbits having feelings. And what are these feelings? They're feeling surprised. They are, well, they're certainly looking surprised by the time she's finished with them because they're, um, they're, they're, they're stuffed and skewered and, and roasted. And then she takes out the jaw bones and sticks them in their eyes. And then she does a load of other stuff. But she then serves them with a bunch of myrtle in their mouths, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I guess they eat things like that. And serve them up with their livers boiled and frothed, which was a, an old way of serving things and roasting things, where just when they're just cooked, you'd um, scatter flour on it and then base some hot oil or hot fat on it and it all froths up. That's what that means. But yes, I think, I mean, I don't know because there's no other information in the recipe, but I think they're surprised and the jaw bones are maybe supposed to represent their eyes on stalks. Like they're literally surprised. They're popping out like yeah. a cartoon. Yeah. I've not found any other mention of anyone sticking the jaw bones of animals in their eyes before being served. And she, but she doesn't explain it. And it's obviously odd. Yes. And she does explain most things, but that one she doesn't. Okay. I do hope to try it one day. I will okay. try it. I will try it one day. We will stay tuned for that, Neil. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll eat, eat anything that's like got eyes popping out, but we'll see. You never know. As I often say, no one's starving who own this book. So they're <laughs> eating these foods because they like yeah. them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're not poor. They're not starving. So they like it. Yeah, and, they, and, and not just the taste of it. I mean, they, it's also providing some element of entertainment isn't it and so this spectacle element is quite important and it would be a surprise i mean yeah. the, the way things are served was a spectacle because it was everything was served on the table i mean in a grand table at the back of the book it's three courses of 25 dishes mm-hmm. so 25 dishes go on no two are the same mm. they all go but well, when they put on, they might have cloches on to keep them warm. So if you imagine, you've got your rabbit surprised underneath a big mm-hmm. cloche and the servants lifted up and you've got this thing <laughs> with his jaw bones looking it's at you. It's very meta. Like, you're surprised, we're surprised, the animal is surprised. It's Everyone's surprised. On. One of the secrets of her success, or perhaps the secret of her success, is her, uh, her eye for theatricality. Mm-hmm. And that grand dining and, and you know, there's this fun, there's big spun sugar webs, there's big wobbly jelly desserts, um, great big massive raised pies, you know, really good, exciting, fun, fun stuff, which I don't really think we get anymore, really, because we don't have that French service of everything being put on the table. But I mean, it's just three courses, 25 dishes per course, that's 75 unique dishes yeah. I mean, could you be bothered? No. I mean, I know that this wasn't something that was maybe served on a daily basis, like the, the you know, the, the feathers that were reinserted in the skin of the bird before serving this on the table, mm-hmm. or maybe the, the spun nest that you tell us about in the book as well, which are made over a hot focus fire, which seems very dangerous. Mm-hmm. But do you think this is totally a thing of the past, or do we retain some elements of this now? Well, I think we do. I mean... 
the thing the fact that things come out of separate courses i think just means we've just lost a certain amount of it mm. but i suppose some people do want to carry that on heston blumenthal the obvious one i suppose who does yeah. do great big massive desserts and you know fun stuff mm. well like i say but how much of a premium does that come out i mean it's the premium of premiums in in the uk i suppose but then again her food was at the time so maybe yeah they are they are comparable we've got the great british menu in the uk uh, yes. where every year usually young chefs put forward you know menus for a grand banquet they always have a different um, theme this year i think is animation <clears throat> so they have yeah so they do these five six courses or whatever so they do they are yeah they, they do have a theatrical element to them but i think what the problem is is that it's the thing that's hard to get right what you want is theatricality but you want to just eat as well so you've got it's got to be edible and not just look good not be style over substance and that's the other thing that elizabeth was so good because she was doing all this crazy stuff but she was keeping within her budget she was down to earth wasn't she as a person we get that idea of her Mm. being quite down to earth yes she knew all this over this over the top stuff was required and she was you know Pretty anti-French cooking, you know, because all the lords and ladies and anybody, gentry and anybody just wanted French cooks. They did the best cuisine. So all the upper middle classes wanted French cooks as well. And it was just, I mean, that was ostentatious. And it was ostentatious all the time. And she, under the rights too, to be fair, not just her, but she said, no, we need to pare this back. We need to reduce the amount of meat. You know, we can use suet instead of butter. Nothing wrong with that. Let's just be sensible here. And that measured approach, saying big eating's fine, but only when it's appropriate, that's yeah. the way to do it. And I think most people breathed a sigh of relief, you know, housekeepers or ladies of the house who were usually running the kitchens and the food anyway, they probably just went, oh, thank God, we don't have to do all this yes. nonsense anymore. Um, I mean, there are French recipes in, in the book, ragouts and things, and fricassees, mm-hmm. you know, these French words. So she's definitely adopted some of it, but really the focus is on good old-fashioned English cooking, you know, where it's plain and simple, really good roasts, really good puddings. There's nothing to hide behind. There's not crazy sauces and all this other stuff. It's just really good food. Elizabeth managed to kind of do a little bit of both. So the mm. some of the French food could sit on the table at the same time as your raised pies or, you know, your very, very British things. And and she yes. pulled it off and said, it's not this or that. We We can do a bit of both and everyone can be happy. And I can stick. I can stick to the budget as well, which at the end yes. of the day is the important thing, I suppose. Absolutely. And talking of budget, the other day I was in the shop, and lard costs less than butter at the moment. Mm. And this is something that I don't know if many people have con- considered maybe cooking with alternative fats. But I was listening to your podcast with Rachel Green, mm. and where you were discussing the fact that lard in itself is—I mean, it has this reputation of being fat and obviously it is fat but it's very damaging but it in itself it isn't per se no it's just that on top of all the other processed and fatty foods that we eat now in our diet as a as a normal kind of part of our everyday it does become then dangerous to well the war on fat, fat which mm-hmm. i bang on about quite a lot in a dark history of sugar mm-hmm. out now folks yeah. that's true i mean they the sugar companies just wanted to give fat a bad name and even though it's largely agreed that sugar is the is the is a culprit in this case fat's been tarnished so people are eating all these processed foods thinking that they're fine and then they go oh we can't possibly make pastry with lard because i'm going to keel over 
with blocked up arteries or whatever. And it's just, and it is nonsense. It's the processed food that's the problem, not the lard. Yes. And I think recipes like yours and the research that you do bring to, to light the fact that it's okay to cook in a certain way and you won't keel over and die. Uh, you need to kind of scrutinize the labels and try and get some more awareness on what certain terminology means. I mean, it's hard to do. It's hard. It's a marketing ploy yeah, as well. That's, that's the so, thing. You know, people try to pull the wool over our eyes all the time. You know, what can we do? But if you're making your own, own food from scratch and you're seeing what's going in there, I realize not everybody has the time to do this, by the way. Absolutely. <laughs> I do realize this, but I think we are sold a little bit much. I mean, I'm going off on a tangent here, but we are sold a bit too much that we don't have any time to do any of these things. And I would say that we do have time because things can be made with, all right, a little bit more effort than putting in a ready meal into the oven, but it can certainly be ready earlier than a ready meal in the oven, be cheaper and have fewer ingredients, which you can increase or decrease depending to your own tastes. It's how it's how we've ended up, unfortunately. We're in the 1700s, and Elizabeth is a forward-minded businesswoman. She appears to be quite modern in many ways, but it is still the 1700s. And of course, religion pervaded everyday life in great detail. And for people living at the time, with religion, of course, came superstition. Sure. And consequently, ghosts and apparitions exerted a strong influence. This is my favourite part now, Neil. You tell oh, us the incredible. <laughs> the incredible story i couldn't believe it when i when i read it this was a part that i was not i did not see coming elizabeth performed an exorcism because there was a troublesome spirit in one of her properties yep. and she was obviously losing rent money so yeah. she decided to go there and sort things out herself so can you tell us a bit more about this story? well i love it i mean as a yorkshireman i can appreciate her way of thinking she um it was this house it was in doncaster because she's from doncaster and i think she uh her and her eldest sister received it in their father's will when he died and they were renting it out it was so haunted that people refused to live in it so she basically swans over from manchester because she's living in manchester at this point to sort out this troublesome spirit i mean how much of it is true we don't know i guess we'll Mm -hmm. leave readers to believe it depends on whether you're a cynic or you know whether you believe in these things i know which side my bread's buttered but yeah it's a great story she so she goes over to Doncaster with her sister to basically sort this mess out. And she just swans in, determined. This ghost, apparently, this apparition appears before both of them, screaming and flashing lights and, you know, blue light coming out of her eyes and waving all these deeds and parchments about. And she just tells it to bog off very loudly, sternly, <laughs> looks at it in its flaming eyes, and it, poof, disappears. So it's from a piece by John Harland, who was a journalist in the 19th century, writing for the Manchester Guardian. And he loved Elizabeth. And he managed to get a few family stories from some of the people who actually knew her. So her nephew, for example, was still alive at this point. Um, One of her granddaughters was still alive. So uh, in fact, the granddaughter is the mum of the sister with her at this apparition, you see. So it's Mm. a story that's been passed on. So I guess that one's not an original story. That's possibly changed i guess it doesn't really matter what your beliefs are whether you believe it's true or not it's the fact that she came in there the story is she came in there without any male chaperone to protect her with a sister and got the job done because she was an amazing forthright woman that i'm fairly sure you will not mess with you don't you don't want to be on the wrong side of raffled i'm fairly sure somebody who uh, has all the achievements who gains all the achievements that she she gained 
you don't get up there by being lovely and nice and fluffy. You've got to be driven. You've got to be focused. So there's a certain amount of, I mean, dare I say a bit ruthless sometimes, certainly short, give short shrift to people. Um, She did all these amazing things. There was the directories of of Manchester and Salford that she did three editions of. You know, she went A to Z of all the people living in Manchester and the landowners that lived around Manchester in that kind of ring, all the different um, coaches you could get to London and to Liverpool and everything. I mean, everything was there. So you think, oh, amazing. She did this amazing thing for Manchester and she did, but... That's because she had an army of her nephews going around with these really detailed maps, delivering food from her shops. And she's like, I can cash in on this. Yes. <laughs> Apart from being brilliant yeah. and really useful for Manchester's business community, she made a killing. Well, I mean, it's definitely someone to be proud of. And I wanted to ask you, is there a statue of her in, in Manchester? No, there isn't. It's a shame. There's a blue plaque on the side of Selfridges. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really okay. high up and you wouldn't notice it. You wouldn't see it. No, you wouldn't mm. notice it at all. There was a bid for a statue a few years ago now, maybe six or seven years ago. Manchester Council put forward, a tw- I think it's a 20 grand prize for a statue of a important woman from Manchester that did something okay. to contribute to Manchester or maybe to society in general. And she was... Well, actually, quite a few women were suggested, and she got down to the final six. But Emmeline Pankhurst pipped her. Oh, yeah. Oh. Which is, I guess it's fair enough. I mean, there, was, there was Pankhurst raffled, which nobody had heard of, and then some other women that most people wouldn't have heard of, whereas most people know about Emmeline Pankhurst. I don't know why there isn't some kind of statue, because everybody that finds out about her, as I did, Keeps her close because she's so good at what she does and also has such admiration for. There's always people piping up about yes. why she's been forgotten. She shouldn't be forgotten. Some journalists write in the 80s saying, why isn't there a restaurant in Manchester called Elizabeth Raffles? Yes. Why isn't there? And it's true. Uh, but I think um, she I think she lost out to Emmeline Pankhurst because Emmeline Pankhurst was trying to make things more equal for everyone, particularly from the point of view of education for, yeah. for, for men and women or, boy, or boys and girls should I say whereas Elizabeth although she did amazing things for Manchester and Manchester would be a very different place if it wasn't for her she was keeping mm. very much in within the society at the time so she never stepped yeah. out of her domestic servant role or housekeeper role or shop workers role I mean she sent her girls to school but she paid for it you know yes. it wasn't like she was trying to get all girls to have the same education as boys and for all education to be free. So she was very much working within society, an unfair, if you like, unequal society where, you know, the difference between rich and poor, you know, it's the biggest difference ever in the whole of UK history is, you know, the Georgian period. Biggest difference between rich and poor has ever been, possibly what there ever will be. So I think that may be why she does lose out to the Pankhursts. Right, because yeah. there's not that more broad social change. Yeah, social. Impact. Yeah, I think that's what it is. But I think we've got to look beyond that a little bit now, especially as things are. I mean, obviously, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a long way to go for equality for different genders, sexualities, races. But we've still got a long way to go. But I think we can also uh, see that as other ways to improve things for us all. Can we also add 
the fact that she was perhaps a Ghostbuster before the actual Ghostbusters. <laughs> I mean, why not? I'm happy with that. Neil, this has been so amazing. When is the book out precisely? So it's out, assuming it all goes to plan, 28th of February. 28th. 28th of February, Great. yeah. Pen and Sword History. I'm really looking forward to see what people what people think of it. I'm very pleased with it, and I hope that people get inf- as infected as I have with her irascibility, uh, her, her amazing recipes, uh, indefatigability. Indefac- it's easy for me to say. <laughs> she's just amazing. The fact, yeah, she was doing it in a, in a century when women didn't do that kind of thing. And actually, one other mm. thing to mention whilst we're talking about it is she was important for all women who were writing any kind of book, whether it's literature, you know, novels, or whether it's a self-help book. People like Elizabeth, you know, she was the first, her and people like Eliza Smith, maybe Hannah Glass as well. You know, like I say, it's not, not just her in some of these cases, although she did it best, <laughs> I argue. These were the first books by women that were appearing in libraries in yeah. middle-class, upper-middle-class and upper-class houses. It made it possible for women to be taken seriously. All right, in a very niche area, cooking, so it's very much a woman's place in inverted commas. But I think once they were making money, they were selling their copyright. I mean, Elizabeth made a lot of money selling the copyright to a book. She was the first woman to ever do it, do that on a, an edition that wasn't the first. I mean, so many poor women got fleeced from selling their copyright Yes. Immediately. She waited. She waited till the third and cashed in. She knew what she was doing. So she really changed things for women. I mean, whether she knew that at the time or not, or whether she was just like, just, I think she was just being Elizabeth and going, and going well, I can do this. I know how to do it. And I'm just going to get in there and do it. And I'm not going to take any crap. Yeah. <laughs> but in doing that meant that other women eventually, it didn't happen overnight, but also didn't have to take that kind of crap, at least not as yeah. much. And well, then, it was inspiring for other women. It was definitely inspiring. I real I realise this is a man saying all of these things, of course. Well, <laughs> but um, you know, all my favourite cookery writers, women, they write for some reason. And I don't know why this is. It's always approachable. It's always mm-hmm. doable. It's not necessarily easy, but they really. I guess it, is it is it an empathy thing? They can really put themselves in the mind of the the home cook stood there in front of some ingredients they've just got out and never cooked something before. They're so good at getting into your mind and going, like, this is how this is how to do it. This is how to know when this is ready. This is how to know. You know, that's a really tricky skill. Yeah. And I just think women are maybe on, you know, oh, there's always variation. But I would say on average, I'd say women cookery writers are much better at that kind of thing than, than male cookery writers. The descriptions are great, aren't they? And they really, I think for these women, it was it was a rarity to be able to to do that. So it's great that you brought to light this person who has, and that was a little bit in the shadow of, of other people. So now she's out in the, in, in the world with even even more. And there are there have been people who have worked on her before. Yeah, I should, I should mention Roy Shipperbottom, really. I mean, I bought the Elizabeth Ruffled reissue, Santa yeah. Press, which it's been, it's well deleted. You can't get it anymore. Mm. Yeah, he wrote this great introduction, which was dense only a couple of well maybe five pages long or something so it's not really long but i think had he not died and it's just such a shame because he didn't even see the publication of the reissue he died before it came out and i'm sure he had lots of information that i never you know that i just 
will never be privy to, of course, because he's passed away. Mm. But I think um, had he not died, you know, I think the Elizabeth Raffle book would have come from him. Okay. I think because his writing's fantastic. Yeah, so it's a shame that, but I guess it comes, it, it brings us around full circle, I suppose. Yeah. It brings us back to my, my first historical cookbook being a raffled. And maybe that was Elizabeth looking over you saying, no, actually, I want this young man to do to do book. Want this Yorkshire lad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want someone, someone else. I want him. There we are. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, indeed. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> cheers, Elizabeth. <laughs> well, thank you, Neil. It's been really great. And I look forward to reading the book again. Actually, should, I should say before we go out, people listening... Keep an eye out on my blogs and social media because I'm going to be putting some bits that I had to cut out the book, for example, just because they spoil the flow. I'm going to put some more recipes out, things for people to try at home, you know, on my Insta and, and my blog and things. So keep an eye out. After I finish talking to you, I'm making Elizabeth's soused tripe. But yeah, oh, I've got loads of plans. I'm going to be making lots of the jellies. I mean, we didn't talk about her famous Solomon's Temple in Flummery. Mm. Uh, I talked a little bit about it with Ivan Day, though, a few episodes ago. So maybe people can go back and listen to the Ivan Day episode where we talk about 18th century dining. But I'm going to try and make some of those this weekend and write some recipes up and get them out. I guess all around the 28th, you know, of February when the, when the book's out. People are going to be sick and tired of raffle recipes. But Never. if it just means a handful of people have a go at doing whatever recipes at home and seeing how good they are, then I'll be very happy. Thank you very much, Alessandra. I must say, she did a fantastic job. As I said at the start, you can find links to Alessandra's podcast, book, etc. in the show notes. I've also left links to a digitised first edition of The Experienced English Housekeeper, as well as Mrs. Beaton's book, and Hannah Glasses, because I mentioned her a couple of times too. By the way, I did get that first edition of Elizabeth's book, and it was nowhere near as tatty as I thought it was going to be. So I am very pleased with myself. I shall be putting out images on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc., so you can see them yourself. Yeah, and don't forget, there's going to be recipes and all sorts on the blog over the next few weeks. Some for subscribers, some for everyone. There's also going to be a lot of social media stuff going out. I'll be tweeting a virtual Elizabeth Raffle tour of Manchester over Twitter. So if you don't follow me on Twitter yet, now's the time to do so. Monthly subscribers, there is one Easter egg on the blog associated with this episode, and it's a bit of after chat, where we talk a little bit about the plum cake that Alessandra made from Elizabeth's book. We also talked about seed cake, toasted wigs, the exclusion of fruit and vegetables from cookery books, when in reality there's actually great variety. And there's also an appeal to red currant growers. If you'd like to become a £3 subscriber or to treat me to a virtual pint or coffee, go to the support the blog and podcast tab at the website BritishFoodHistory.com. And yes, don't forget to contact me with comments and queries for the upcoming postbag episode. And also don't forget, if you haven't done already, to listen to episode two of the Lent podcast, which looks, if I remember correctly, at the history of Lent. When was it enforced? How the rules have changed? That sort of thing. But off I go. See you next time for the last episode of season five. Cheerio. Cheerio.